Thank you very much, Matt Smith, Nick Khalil, and Dante Degori. Our next session, we're delighted to introduce our Head of Domestic Content. He will be moderating this next session, that is Alex Proimos. And joined live from Santa Fe, New Mexico, we have the President and the Chief Executive of Thornburg Investment Management, and that is Jason Brady. They're looking to collectively at the state of the global economy, at money markets, and where opportunities may lie. Uh, Jason, can you hear me? I sure can. Okay, I couldn't, I couldn't hear Lawrence, but uh, welcome very much uh, today. Um, we've heard a great evening, great, sorry, great morning with uh, Jane Hume opening up the conference. And um, really, this is the first chance that our listeners across Investment Magazine and, and Professional Planner um, have to hear about the markets, um, which is why we've brought you in as President and Chief Executive of Thornburg Investment Management. And for the listeners at home, I'd uh, like to just also make you aware that Jason and I um, had a podcast yesterday that's on the uh, retirement investment website um, to discuss a lot of the sort of content that we're talking about today in terms of the state of the markets in more detail. So um, once the conference is over, you'll have a chance to sort of listen uh, to that conversation more broadly um, at, a, at a later time. But Jason, I think to sort of start the, the session, you know, can you please provide sort of a a brief uh, state of the markets at the moment. You know, the market's obviously being extremely volatile across both equities uh, and fixed interest. Maybe just kick it off there in terms of um, what, what investors are seeing. Sure. So I think there's a couple characteristics of the market today. The first is we're trying to price uncertainty. Nobody really knows what global curves are going to look like. Um, the Russian rocket scientist who runs Risk for us, I'm not joking, literally a Russian rocket scientist, um, talks about small changes in variables leading to big changes in outcomes. And that's really the kind of uncertainty that we have here with regard to the health crisis that's, that's unfolding. But pricing uncertainty isn't the only piece of this. Uh, what we're also pricing is liquidity and the requirement of market participants to suddenly raise liquidity either for some kind of redemption or some kind of margin call. And that's really quite a, a strong uh, force in the market today. When it's less bad, maybe because of policy, Fed action, et cetera, then markets are rising. And when that's more of a challenge, then markets are falling. I think the last thing is we're entering into a period where we're having to think about second order of there's the first, okay, companies or what situations we are better or what do we want? We really need to get into the second order effect of what does this look like in a month and a year, which is, which is again, another source of uncertainty. It's funny, you know, yesterday I was talking to another fund manager that mentioned to me that when you have a situation where markets are moving 6-7% a day, um, it really uh, tells you that the market participants really have no idea what's going on. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, uh, that's right. Um, who knows what the price is exactly or what the price should be? You know, oftentimes in markets, we're tempted into a situation where we give normative statements. And normative statement is, well, it should be here. Well, Maybe it should be there, but it isn't there. So that's absolutely right. The volatility is showing, again, stress in the marketplace and uncertainty. And one is the uncertainty is really causing that stress again, causing that those liquidity challenges. So let's take it closer to home, I think, for a lot of people that are in the audience and, and sort of really think about income. Um, and you know, the, the, the need and desire for income has never been stronger. Um, we've sort of had a you know, a market over the last few years where, you know, people were pushed into increasingly riskier and riskier um, assets as, as they looked for income. I guess 
you know, what, what do investors really need to think about today as they reevaluate where to find income and, and where to invest from that perspective? Sure. So I think uh, there's been a progression of thought around this over the last, you know, 12 years. And, you know, at, at Thornbrook, we've been searching for the, for good answers to the income problem for a long time. I've spent my career uh, grappling with that across asset classes. And and really, the reach for income as the safe asset has declined in yield, and that's globally, the reach for income has become significant. And it's caused a lot of activity both in investors' portfolios, but also in sort of the lending paradigm. So companies globally have taken on a lot of debt because uh, yields are lower and, and therefore made themselves riskier, all while uh, individuals or, or institutions have been searching for more and more yields that they've been reaching. So really, it's it, it, to encapsulate it, you could get basically high-quality um, sovereign bonds 20 years ago with something like a 3 to 4% after inflation yield. And now that number is negative one, negative one, sort of depends on what your 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 measure of inflation is, maybe, maybe even larger, uh, more negative. So that is the dynamic we're in. And so folks have searched uh, for either individual asset solutions or asset allocation solutions that help them with this problem. And it's, and it's a challenging problem. Mm-hmm. Now, historically, a, a, lot of, a lot of investors have been looking at rates, energies, financials, um, as the ability to sort of capture income, you know, in, in many cases from a dividend side. Um, both, both energy and financials have been hit. Uh, REITs also probably similar. Now, I guess mm-hmm. what, what, should people, what should investors be thinking about when they look at those particular sectors? Sure. So as always, the differentiation, the sort of more granular differentiation is, is critical. Um, and taking energy to start with, um, REITs and financials obviously have some similarities. Uh, but uh, with regard to energy, you have a very obviously commodity-dependent uh, c- corporation, whatever part of the capital structure. And that commodity has shown itself continually to be extremely volatile. And so cash flows from those, uh, those companies have also been fairly volatile. And that has led to a less reliable income stream, potentially, but certainly also uh, valuation. Um, today, what's critical is to find the folks with a balance sheet to be able to withstand the shock that we've seen. So on one hand, you have uh, a lot of fixed interest uh, that references, you know, E&P companies or, or less creditworthy companies, uh, and those securities are are in are significantly challenged. Um, on the flip side, you have uh, global integrated oil companies that have a much better balance sheet. Uh, their credit is actually not that interesting, but the equities can provide you some some really interesting uh, portfolio positions as well as yield. So, again, differentiating is key. In financials, once again, you have banks that are in a much better situation than they were globally in 08. Uh, certainly, global money center banks, um, you know, think JP Morgan, are, are in very good shape. The regulatory impetus has been, been much, much stronger going into this. So even though they have challenges, they've actually pushed those challenges onto the market. So I think there's different places to go. Both of those sectors are beaten up. They are value. They are very cyclical on the equity side. Um, REITs uh, have a little bit different position. I think property has some, some new and novel challenges. Uh, but ultimately, you're going to have to go. You know, you're going to have to go name by name. Um, I would say going down in quality in this market uh, is is likely to to be a real challenge as more liquidity issues and more kind of balance sheet problems come to light. Mm-hmm. 
Maybe this is a good chance to to switch to the audience, and and we have a polling question um, that we'd like the audience to to respond to, and that is uh, for investors looking for reliable income streams in 2020, which asset uh, is likely to have the best results? Um, we've got four choices there. We'll get that put up uh, on screen, hopefully, in a minute. Uh, equities, real assets, listed fixed income, and private credit. So hopefully, we're getting that up on my side. But uh, while we're going, I guess, uh, Jason, you know, I guess a lot of a lot of the institutional um, funds and, and also on the retail side has been advising, particularly on private credit um, of late. It was seen as as the go-to area. Um, we're starting to see some some real issues around um, you know the the valuations of some of these private uh, credit offerings. Uh, we do now have the details coming up um, with equities and real assets almost neck and neck. So uh, okay, maybe, maybe you'd like to comment on on um, on those results. Can you see them on your side? I can indeed. So. Um... I agree with the audience in, in one place and, and maybe provide some context or some nuance in another. And this, certainly the point of agreement is on private credit. Um, as the prior panel uh, finished with some commentary around valuation and uh, how those assets are being valued. And with much of the global stress coming to small and medium-sized businesses, in addition to credit generally being challenged and the over leverage that was in those spaces, um, if those assets were marked to where someone would buy them, I would suggest the pain would be tremendous. So um, I think it's a question of how well that was underwritten and what resources exist to do workout, which is almost certainly going to be required uh, in the context of the challenges that we see going forward. Um, look, I think equities and real assets have some 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 real benefits to them. Um, and certainly for us and managing a multi-asset income strategy, we think there's some really good things to do in equities. What I will, a nuance I'll point out around um, fixed interest is particularly fixed interest in credit that is pu public or listed, not private credit, which I think, again, has to go undergo a significant marking challenge. Um, through and out of uh, many of the more recent challenges, market dislocations, whether it's 2008, 9, uh, 11, 12, or 15 and 16. Actually, the listed credit market, and I'm talking about credit, not um, high quality fixed income, the listed credit market actually had some of the best returns and best recovery. So I think what you've seen is liquidity in that marketplace depress prices quite significantly. And that actually could can and could be a vehicle both for income, but also for interesting returns. Again, I can't pick the bottom. I've I bought the bottom, but I've never just bought the bottom. Uh, but as you go through and into the recovery, that's a place to look. Uh, has historically been, I think, will be again. Are there particular sectors? That's one of the questions that came through in terms of examples of, of private credit that, that you know, investors should be looking at. Well, so again, on the private credit space, I think what you've seen is a lot of lending, which is to say not listed or uh, small and medium-sized enterprise lending uh, into structures that have lockups. You know, a lot of that lending has been to software, which may be not essential. It's been to um, cash, cash flow lending in the context of small businesses, which in many cases are losing uh, up to 100% of their revenue. On the sort of lower quality of the listed side, I think for me, staying away from commodity production, as I mentioned earlier, the folks that are going to win that are the good balance sheets, um, think the global integrated oils, and then definitely go to the equity side. 
Uh, but actually, there's tremendous value um, in the industrial sector. Uh, there's interesting things to do in healthcare, even without having to predict what a cure or vaccine will look like. Uh, but generally, again, it's a question of putting yourself on the right side of the liquidity trade. So when everyone has to sell and get out, are you able to position yourself effectively? Um, the Fed has backstopped, um, in the U.S. anyway, has backstopped high-quality credit, uh, but lower-quality credit is certainly left out of that equation, and, and it's left to investors to pick up the pieces if they can. You, you mentioned cash and the importance of cash flow to, to the assets. I guess, what, what's your view on, on actually cash itself? You know, and we, we heard a very famous quote that cash is trash, um, almost you know, timing with the peak of the market. I guess, what's, what's your thinking about cash and, and, and the ability to hold cash in portfolios? Sure. So uh, clearly, um, as global rates have declined uh, on the front end, as, as well as along it, but certainly on the front end, the impetus is to take away the benefit of cash. But one thing I think investors need to think about uh, at all times in the context of their overall portfolio, portfolio construction uh, is, is not something that's at a point in time. It's not a singular event. Portfolio construction is over time. And one of the biggest benefits of cash is that it's one of the few things you have in your portfolio that retains its optionality. And what do I mean by that? Well, I can turn cash into anything. But what we've seen in the last week or month is that I can't turn anything into cash. And so if you're going to rebalance and reposition your portfolio, it's really critical to have some flexibility, especially when others don't. Because those are the times when you can really add value as a market participant. And positioning yourself for that is hard. Um, sometimes it makes you feel silly, uh, particularly when luminaries tell you that cash is trash. Uh, but that optionality, again, is portfolio construction over time, not just at a point in time. Let, let's sort of switch to protection. And, you know, a, a number of the industry funds in Australia have been pretty notable in saying that they don't believe in, um, in holding any specific protection because they've got the diversification that they need. Um, you know, how, how does Thornburg think about protection and maybe some put strategies or derivative strategies uh, as a hedge? Sure. So, so we have that capability and we think about what puts might look like or what, uh, what various derivative strategies might be, might be effective. The challenge with a lot of that is when you rely on a fairly complex derivative strategy for your protection, oftentimes the benefit gets lost in the structuring. So there's been numerous occasions, and to include just now, where folks have put on pretty interesting trades and it kind of the structure wasn't quite right and it didn't give them what they thought. So I have a lot of sympathy, frankly, for the you know keep it simple, stupid strategy of, of, of the portfolio construction methodology. The challenge there is in the correlations between assets. So a simple diversification strategy more or less depends on correlations between assets being low. And I think what the what the broad market um, has is starting to realize is that those correlations are not constant. In fact, what we've seen, especially as global rates are so low, is that the place of high quality fixed income is very, very different in our portfolio relative to risky assets like equities or even uh, long dated infrastructure. So it's it's a. I think that keep it simple is is relatively important. Um, if you're engaging in derivative strategies, for us, those strategies and those thought processes tend to be fairly simple. Um, but really, the key is knowing what you own from an individual asset perspective. But then, as you put that together in a portfolio, taking that knowledge that of the individual asset and placing it in a portfolio construction context. 
hey, I, I can know this equity, I can know this bond, but if I don't know them, how they fit together, I haven't really brought together that knowledge into the portfolio. And, and that's actually the most critical part of this. I think another critical part and sort of getting investors sort of uh, sort of understanding, you know, what to expect from the market is appropriate benchmarks and and what to what to look for. I think the historical CPI plus two, three, four, or five percent is is going to be really challenged in the next couple of years. I guess what what do you look at, you know, in terms of constructing a portfolio as an appropriate benchmark for for investors? Sure, I, I think the the there are a few big opportunities as an investment manager to really get in touch with your client and. The benchmark discussion is maybe one of the biggest. And the reason I say that is because the benchmark discussion is really part, it will become a measurement for the investment manager. And that's, that's as it should be. But at its inception, that conversation is about the needs of the client and the needs of the asset owner. So CPI plus one, two, three, four is fine. That's actually a lot closer to the client requirement than a lot of benchmarks would be. But as we're sort of seeing here, the pathway and volatility element of that, again, even in some cases, the liquidity element of that is something that is missing from the conversation of a benchmark. So I think the, those conversations, if you haven't had them already, it's almost too late. It's really about what do you need? What are you trying to achieve? And what can you withstand on both sides from a pathway perspective? How much can you miss out on and how much um, do you need protection from? And, and ultimately, uh, it's critical that you have an investment manager that's able to take the holistic, whole view of the market, right? As opposed to, hey, well, I only know this one asset class, or I only know this one asset class, and I don't really care how you put them together. That's that's your problem. Yeah, okay, except when correlations uh, come together and no one's able to have that conversation with you as the asset owner of how this could or should fit together and give you that perspective. So it's really a, a, a critical conversation that has way more elements to it than well, how are we going to measure you at the end of the day? All right, final final question. We've got a, a minute to go, and and there's a question that's come through about what are the factors that determine you know whether a share market has bottomed. You know, I'd like to sort of maybe broaden that out in terms of tipping points across both fixed interest and equities, because we've seen equities really rallying the last couple of days, very volatile, but we've seen a pretty consistent sign on the credit fixed interest side where there is real stress. So what are you looking at, I guess, in terms of maybe a bottoming out process rather than a bottom, which is obviously very hard to time? Sure. Again, it's, it's the, you, you, hope you, you hope you can find the answer. And if I could say, OK, here's the one thing. Um, ultimately, what we're trying to resolve here, as I said at the beginning, is uncertainty. And that uncertainty is an element of, of facts, factual outcomes from a health crisis, which you know, I wasn't here. I wasn't around in 1918, so I struggle um, to to really to know that. If anybody was, please uh, contact me. Uh, but I think the other piece is what are the sort of other cockroaches, right? So, you know, I said there's never just one problem. How many more cockroaches are there? How many more liquidations are there? How many more margin crawls are there? And when we start getting that to be a little bit less, when it feels like we've seen a lot of cockroaches. Then ultimately what you have is a market that can say, okay, well, this uncertainty is less from a market structure standpoint as well as from you know, the, the, health, uh, the health crisis standpoint. And that's when people can get a little bit more understanding of you know, what's the E and PE or you know, what's, the, what's the EBITDA and the leverage ratio or how do I actually value anything? Um, and we're just, in my mind, we're just not there yet. 
All right. Thank you very much, Jason, for your time today uh, and, and discussing income and how to navigate the volatility that we're seeing. Thanks again. Lawrence, I'll pass to Pleasure. you.